0: Welcome to The Way Church. We're glad you're joining us for today's message. For sermon notes, service times, and more information, check us out online at thewaychurchva.com. Now let's join Pastor Matt Rothy with this week's message. Do you ever close your eyes and dream or keep your eyes wide open and daydream about heaven? Specifically, what heaven looks like. When you think about heaven, when you envision heaven, what does it look like? What do you look like there? I know it's something that you think about. Maybe Maybe you've been a Christian for a long time and you're just really, really excited to be in heaven with God and you know that heaven is a wonderful place filled with God's glory and grace and you just want to see your Savior's face and you don't really care what it's actually like. You just want to be there and yet you're curious. You know that God has prepared a place for you in heaven and you want to know, what does it look like? Maybe I've shared this in a sermon before or at least I think I've told some of you When I was five, maybe six years old, I I still at that time didn't fully realize how cool it was, how awesome it was to get to go to church and sing God's praises. And so on Sundays, my parents and my Sunday school teachers kind of had a task on their hand trying to get me to sing. And I remember being five, six years old, being in Sunday school, and one of my Sunday school teachers told me that in heaven, we're gonna get to sing God's praises and we're gonna do it unending, for eternity. We're just going to keep singing his praises. And I thought to myself, oh no, oh no. To me, heaven seemed like a place that was a never-ending choir practice. And at five, six years old, I said to myself, I don't know if I actually want to be there. That's what heaven is like. I'm past that. I got over that. I do want to be in heaven, even if that's what it's like, because singing God's praises and his glory forever and ever will be truly awesome, But maybe some of you think about heaven the same way that five or six-year-old Matt thought about it. You Think to yourself, is that really a place that I want to be? That's just another way of saying, is heaven really a place that's for me? Will I be welcomed there? You close your eyes and dream about heaven or just find yourself daydreaming. What does heaven look like? One of the cool things about our God is that he doesn't tell us exactly what it will look like. He doesn't lay out in detailed fashion exactly what heaven will be like so we know in and out what heaven will look like for sure. But one of the great and glorious things that our great and glorious God does is on the pages of scripture, he gives us pictures of heaven. He gives us snapshots, if you will, just glimpses of heaven and even the sneak peeks, even the quick looks at what heaven will be like are truly captivating. They're truly breathtaking. We have one of those pictures set before us today in Revelation chapter seven. Our sermon lesson this morning is one of those most glorious pictures of what heaven will be like. And yet, Revelation chapter seven is also one of the most misunderstood sections of scripture. And it's a tragedy It's a tragedy because what we have in this section is a picture of what God's people, of what the church, our church, will look like in heaven. And that picture is so powerful. It's so profound that the picture of God's church in heaven, it has a powerful effect on what our church is like even here today and now. We're in a sermon series called Our Church where we're looking at our church and we're doing so by looking at the different values that our church has. In the first week, we looked at the value that permeates everything we do at this church, and that is to share good news, to share the good news of Jesus Christ, that your name is written in heaven, etched in stone by the hands that were stretched out on the cross for you. That is what we're all about. That is what we do in everything that we do. And that naturally led us to the second value that we have, and that is to grow together how we grow together is by gathering together around God's word and and not just looking at God's word and, and knowing it. It's, that's not what growing is about, just growing in and to know it, but it's to grow together. It's to mature together in the grace of our God, to build one another up in faith, to build up the body of Christ. And all these values, they They have a synergy between them. You can't have one without the other because it's not just about growing together with the people here, but sharing God's love, having God's love isn't just what builds us up, but it's also something that moves us to go and take and share with others. That's the third value we're looking at today is the idea of loving other people. Revelation chapter seven has a picture of what heaven will be like, a powerful picture that, that moves our church to, to go and, and to love others, to love people that are here and to love those who are not here as well. But I need you to give you a heads up before we get into this lesson for today. Because Revelation chapter seven is, is a section of scripture that comes straight at your heart come straight at our heart and reveal some things that maybe we didn't know were on our hearts, but at the very same time, it fills our hearts up with what we need. This is Revelation chapter seven. It begins this way. After this, I am gonna pause right there because I need to give you some context into what is going on in Revelation chapter seven. Revelation seven starts with Revelation 6 stops. And Revelation 6 is a scary chapter. There's some things going on in that chapter that are frightening. What begins chapter 6 is a rider on a white horse going out to conquer. And that rider on the white horse is Christ, going out to conquer and build his kingdom by spreading the gospel. That's not the scary part. What follows that is, is a red red rider on a red horse going out, bent on one thing violence and and bringing violence and spreading violence throughout the world. What follows that horse is a black horse that is the personification of famine and hunger and starvation. And that horse is set on one thing, taking famine throughout the world. Following that horse is a green horse that takes out other plagues and other bad things like beasts and destruction and kills a quarter of the people on the earth. And what Revelation chapter 6 shows us is a scary thing, the end times. What it predicts and depicts is the time before our Lord comes again. In Revelation 6, God's people look to God and they say, Lord, how long is this going to go on? And God's answer is for a while. It's not going to stop yet. And what God does is send an earthquake on the world and the sun goes dark and stars fall from the heaven and people who aren't Christians, who don't believe in God are terrified. They're afraid and they run to the hills. They hide in caves to try to avoid the wrath of God. That's what happens in Revelation 6. And that's what we need to know begins Revelation 7, John, the apostle, is seeing visions given to him from God. And after he sees that one, he sees this one. He writes, After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or the sea or on any tree. Then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000. From the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. From the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. From the tribe of Levi, 12,000. From the tribe of Issachar, 12,000. From the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000. From the tribe of Joseph, 12,000. From the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000. This is God's word so far. What does this vision mean that the Lord gave his church and the Apostle John in Revelation 7? while I could tell you what it doesn't mean, that it doesn't mean that there are just going to be 144,000 in heaven, and it does not mean that the people in heaven are just going to be Israelites, and I could prove that to you by reading the next verse, which says, in heaven, there's going to be more people than anyone could count from every nation, tribe, and people, and 144 is a lot, but I can still count that high. No, while I could tell you all about what this vision does not mean, let me tell you what it does mean. What it means is that God, during these last times, during times where there is trials and there is tribulations before Christ Jesus comes again, he's going to hold in his hand, his people. He is going to mark, he is going to seal God's people. And throughout scripture, what do we know about God's people? Well, they're often referred to as the true Israel, the spiritual Israel. And what God does by giving 12, the number of completeness, and giving it again and again, multiplying it by itself, is he says, all of God's people, the entirety of my people, my whole church, our church is going to be sealed and protected in these last times. I'm going to keep them safe. How? By Sending my guardian angels to hold back things that would harden them, but placing my seal on them so that they know and I know that they are mine. That's what God's word shows us this great comfort, this great encouragement to you and me, to our church in these last times, in the end times. So, what does that mean for our church? Well, it's certainly an encouragement and it's certainly a comfort for our church, the Way Church, to know that God is caring for us and he's protecting us. It also reminds us that our church, the Way Church, is not the embodiment of the holy Christian church on earth. We confess it every Sunday when we say the creeds. We believe in the holy Christian church, the communion of saints, That means there are other people who are a part of God's church that are in God's family. I need to say that. I need to say that because I recognize there is an inherent danger when having a sermon series called Our Church. That's that we love our church too much. That we love being a confessional Lutheran church too much that we love being a part of a church body called the Wisconsin Evangelical Lutheran Synod too much. And as a church and a group of people who are proud to have the true word of God, to know that we are sealed, that we are protected, that we are held in God's hands. well, we as a church, well, we become we-centered or me-centered. That's just another way of saying that this very same thing that can happen to a person that they become narcissistic and egotistical, that can happen to a church. That we look at our lives and we think that the way, that the way does church is the right way to do church. And we start to think that if people aren't with us, then they're against us. Think about that. Think about how that attitude affects the way that we share our faith and share the love of Christ to people who either know Christ or especially to people who don't know Christ. Think about how that attitude comes across to Christ. Loving our church is a really good thing. Loving our church that stands for the true word of God and the whole truth of God is a beautiful thing. But loving our church too much to the fact where we are only focused on us and our church is not a good thing. Why did God give us this section of scripture, this vision in Revelation 7? Well, it's it's to remind us of what the Apostle Paul talks about in Romans 8, that I consider our present sufferings, they're not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. God gives us a picture here in Revelation in chapter seven to say, look, you are suffering. But chapter six is not worth comparing to chapter seven because you are sealed, you are bound in the hands of the almighty God. You are kept safe until his return, until he comes again. That is what you have. And that means something for our church. That means something for you. That as you live life and you deal with our present sufferings, there's other people that deal with present sufferings. Maybe that present suffering is exactly what those horses were bringing. They deal with violence. Maybe from bullying or hate or loneliness or heartbreak. They deal with hunger. And maybe it's for very real and very physical food. Or maybe it's people hungering and thirsting after Christ's righteousness. There's people that mourn. There's people that are sad. There's people who want and need what you have. And what this vision, what Revelation 7 shows is that you have hope. You have peace with the eternal God. And that means, that means you are free to focus not on yourself. You are free to focus on Christ who gave this to you and to focus on others. To focus on others who will be there with you in heaven. But get this, listen to this. May not know it yet. You are free to focus on those people who, who maybe know all about Jesus, but maybe don't. That's what you're free to focus on. Not ourselves, not yourself or our church, but others. I don't know. We're talking about loving others, and maybe that's too simple, <laughs> that idea, <laughs> that we are to focus on others when loving others. Maybe it's, maybe it's something that some of you... <laughs> didn't really need a reminder about. Maybe some of you did. I know I did. And the reason is because there's a lot at stake. (laughs) There's a lot at stake when we are focused on just ourselves, when I'm me or we centered. (laughs) It's, It's more than just losing out on focusing on others. It affects the way we live. It affects the way we witness in our world. And well, the way we let Christ's life and light shine through us. It's because we can become, well, obnoxious. And that's a really hard and weighty accusation. So let me explain it. And Revelation 7 gets at this. It continues on. There's, there's multiple visions here in chapter 7. And after he see, sees the, the, the 144,000 on earth kept safe, John looks and there before him, me, was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe and people and language standing before the throne and before the lamb. Allow some commentary. Recall in the first eight verses, he's looking at the earth and what happens there. His focus shifts. And now there's a vision of heaven there. There's a great multitude and where are they? They're before the throne and before the lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they crowd out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and all the elders, the four living creatures, they fell down and they worshiped God saying, Salvation, or they said, amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Can I admit something to you? I began the sermon by asking you what you see when you picture heaven. And if I'm being honest with you, when I picture heaven and the way I look at heaven, it's through a first-person vantage point, first-person perspective. And I guess what I'm trying to say is this. When I think of heaven, and I don't know, perhaps you're like me, I think of myself. I think of myself being in heaven. I think of my family, of course, being in heaven, my faith family, all of you being in heaven with me. I think of some friends being heaven with me. I'm ashamed to admit that's often where it stops. How about you? What do you see when you look at heaven? Does your vision of heaven, well, does it match the vision of heaven that God gives us in his word, where there is so many people there in heaven that no one could count? And they're from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the lamb. What does your picture of heaven look like? You know why John uh, wrote this book? You know where John was when he wrote this book? The apostle John was on an island called Patmos when he he wrote this book and was given these revelations from God and, and Christ Jesus himself said, write these things down. He's on this island and he's there because he told people about Jesus. He told people about the love that he had for Christ and the love more so that Christ has for him. That's why he's there, because he loved to tell people about Jesus. He knew that in order to see more people with him before the throne of God, that he, he had to share the word of Christ. And he knew what we looked at in week one, that faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. You have to tell people about Jesus. You have to get an audience for the gospel. But he knew that was easier said than done. So John said things like this. In his first epistle, he wrote this. He said, dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. And everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is, is how God showed his love among us. He sent his only son and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. Getting a hearing for God's word and getting a hearing for the love of God to others is how people come to know about God's love. It starts one of the simplest ways through church being loving and doing that and not being obnoxious. Maybe, maybe you've seen churches or, or seen people that are like that. I know I have. They're churches that, that have the truth of God, that love the truth of God, and share the truth of God with people. And then when other people come to hear the truth of God, well, they don't want to stay and grow in the truth of God with them. And the church pats themselves on the back and says, good job, we shared the truth of God. But they were just obnoxious. They weren't loving in the way they shared the beautiful truths of God's word. I know this is, as well as anybody, that that pastors are guilty of this too. It's, It's something that's not lost on me. That's why God in his word again and again encourages pastors and all people to share God's love, to share his truth with gentleness, with patience, and with kindness. It's because when we don't share God's word with gentleness, patience, and kindness, and we're obnoxious, well, there's consequences. That's why I start out every, every sermon with that same prayer. It's Psalm 19, verse 14. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts, may they be pleasing in your sight. Those are the words that King David wrote, and they're elegant, right? But you want to know what I'm thinking during that? Lord, help me not mess this up. <laughs> help me not mess up this opportunity, Help me not blow this chance to get to share your word. Because after all, that's what a sermon is. It's explaining God's word to God's people. It's a prayer that says, Lord, help me do it carefully. Help me do it accurately. Help me do it faithfully so that others may know your love. Because that's what happens when you share God's word. The Holy Spirit works through that word. And the Holy Spirit is let loose to let people know, to work faith in the hearts of people that trust in God's love. That's what we do here at The Way Church. That's that's what we do in everything here. I'm talking about way more than the sermon. We share God's word. We look to gain an audience for God's word. What happens when we sing songs? There's a word. There's a word there that's carried to you melodically. What happens when we celebrate baptism or gather together around the Lord's Supper? There's a word. There's a word there carried to you sacramentally. When we see Christian art, there's an image. There's an image and the word, the word of God is carried to you artistically. That's what happens when we hold the science camp. We we also share God's word and the word of God is carried, not scientifically, but practically. It's practically applied to our lives where science meets God's word. And we look in everything we do to share God's word with people and do it in a way that is not obnoxious, but in a way that is full of love. Can I give you one example of that here? Maybe maybe you don't think anything about it, maybe you don't even remember this, but when we started out this church, the families that began this church and I had a decision to make, whether or not I was going to wear a robe when I stood up here and I preached. If you remember or know anything about historical confessional Lutheran traditional worship, pastors always wear robes. That's what I've seen throughout my life, a pastor wearing a robe or an alb. So why? Why are we not standing here looking at me wearing that? Well, we made this decision because we recognized that, well, there is a subculture, a subculture in our community of confessional Lutheran people, but there's also subcultures of people who, to them, That's not something they're used to. That's not something that they know. And so when it came to thinking through reaching that community and all communities with the message of the gospel, and we thought about what would happen if someone came here, saw that, and wasn't used to that, and they walked away thinking, ah, that church, that's not for me, that wouldn't be cool, (laughs) Everything we do, everything we do at this church is to gain an audience to share the gospel because the gospel works and creates heart, faith in the hearts of believers. It's for others that we do that so that more and more people might be next to us, standing there on the throne, near the throne of God, worshiping him, glorifying him there in heaven. That means something for us. That means that loving others takes us from being obnoxious to being loving in the way that we witness and share our faith. Look, the Christian religion is not an ethno-religious religion. That means there are lots and lots of ethnicities. That's what Revelation 7 shows us, that there is here in God's kingdom, people from every nation, tribe, people. There's people from every community imaginable, There's people that are going to be next to you, bowing down, rubbing shoulders with you before the Lamb of God who sits upon the throne that are from far different upbringings than you. There's going to be every single political party there gathered together around the throne. There's going to be every single preference in worship style and ministry philosophy there gathered together around God's throne. There's going to be people, believers who have dealt with every single temptation known to man, temptations that are very different than the ones you deal with, gathered together there around God's throne. It means that our witness and our love of others has to be just that, loving, full of love. I'm not talking about taking the truth, the true word of God and watering it down in any way. What I'm talking about is bringing the whole truth and nothing but the truth and bringing it with the whole love of God. The Christian life and the Christian witness is a lot like a Christian going through life well, like an airplane goes through the, through the air. There's two wings. There's a wing called love and there's a wing called truth. If you have just love but no truth, you're gonna crash and burn. If you have just truth and, and no love, the same thing's gonna happen. You crash and burn in the way that you live out your faith and love others and share the truth. And you have one amazing truth to tell. It's here in Revelation 7. See if you catch it. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever, amen. Then... One of the elders asked me, These in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? I answered them, Sir, you know. And he said, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Did you catch it? Did you catch the amazing truth that you have? it's the truth that you've been washed. it starts with the truth that you needed to be washed. A truth that, well, Isaiah reminds us about in Isaiah 64, that all of us have been dirty. All of us have become like one who is unclean. All our righteous acts are like filthy rags. The truth is this, all of us were at one time unclean and dirty. Dirtied because of sin. Sins in our self-centeredness, in the way we live our lives, sins of obnoxiousness in the way that we live out our faith. But there's been a cleansing agent. And that agent is the blood of Christ. In 1 John, John, who saw this vision, said, the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sins. The blood of Jesus Christ is the blood that has cleaned away all of our sins, has bought us back, brought us back, redeemed us, washed all of our sins away, so now we stand before the throne of God. You stand before the throne of God, even here and now, as you deal with sin. Though a sinner, you're a saint. You're wearing the royal robes of Christ, made white by his precious blood. That's your truth. That's the truth that we have, that it is by grace, through faith, we have been made clean. Do you know there's a stereotype of churches like ours, a stereotype maybe of of Lutheran churches is, is that we are, well, lazy. We're lazy in the way that we live out our faith. You wanna know why? It's because we know the truth. We know the truth that we have what Revelation 7 talks about. We have redemption by the blood of Christ. We are standing before the throne of God. And so we sit back and we take this spiritual posture where we look at all that Christ has done and we say, it is finished. It is done. But is that how scripture talks about us living out our faith? It's not even how Revelation 7 talks about. After describing the fact that we have been washed, we have been made white in the blood of Christ, there is a therefore, a because of that, a resulting in This is the reaction and there is action. And this is it. That they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water. And God will wipe every tear away from their eyes. This is the word of God. Why did God give us the vision in Revelation 7? Was it so that we can see clearly what heaven is like? Well, certainly in part, so that we can see heaven, so that we can know what heaven looks like. But don't you think if he he wanted us to know every detail about what heaven looked like and we could just know what heaven looked like, he'd give us many more fill-in-the-blanks about what experiencing heaven would be like. He gives us this vision of heaven so that you know right here and right now you have the comfort, you have the hope of being bound up in eternity with him forever in everlasting life. And it's so that your earthly life has, well that in mind. We looked at Romans chapter eight. We looked at Revelation seven that shows us where we're at, not yet, but what we already have. And that is the status of being those who have made it out of this, made it out of this tribulation, made it out of this trial, and are standing there before the throne of God in worship and praise to him. And he gave that to us. Why? To comfort us, to encourage us, to empower us to live anew in this life here and now. He gave us that hope so that as we wait for Christ to return, we're not, well, just waiting around. The life of a Christian is not a state of just staticness. It's, it's a state of service, service to our God. In Ephesians 2, we read that we are God's handiwork, created in Christ to do good works, to do good works, which God has prepared in advance for us to do. I started out this sermon asking you, what do you see when you picture the place that God has prepared in advance for you in heaven? Let me end it this way. What do you see, what do you picture when you envision the good works that God has prepared in advance for you to do? Thinking of heaven is kind of an abstract thought to us. Our earthly minds can't wrap our minds around the great and gloriousness that is in Christ. But the good works, the good things that he has given us to do, those we can see. And that means that when we look to be loving others as a church, we go from being lazy to being service-minded, to have a life full of serving. You know the people. You know the people in your life who hunger and thirst, maybe for physical food, maybe for righteousness. God has prepared a good thing for you to do for them. You know those who are living life in such a way where they're like standing out under the sun in scorching heat, they feel just drained. God has prepared a good thing for you to do for them. You know those who mourn, those who suffer and need comfort because their eyes are filled with tears. God has given and prepared a good thing for you to do for them so that they know, they know this, that the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd and he will lead them to springs of everlasting life. May the God who saved you by grace through faith in Christ, may the God who made you God's handiwork in Christ, may the God who prepared good things for you to do in advance. May that God bless you and fill you with all his peace, all his joy, as you individually and we together love others. Amen.